Let's start out today with uh, something funny. I'm going to read it just because of the sake of time. It helps me out a little bit. And I, I just can't help, man. When, every time I read this, I just start laughing. So uh, I have a little bit of a, a warped sense of humor. So you, you know me by now. So it, it'll be okay. So turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay. I'm as warped as he is. Okay, here you go. One day, Bill got on the phone and called his neighbor and said to his neighbor, Bill, there's a gorilla swinging on the satellite dish of your house. A gorilla. Bill quickly ran outside, and sure enough, there was a gorilla swinging on his antenna, and he ran inside and called the zoo. The man at the zoo said that they didn't handle situations like that, but he gave Bill a number of a guy who did. Well, Bill called the guy, and the guy came over to Bill's house and brought five things. A ladder, a rifle, a baseball bat, a rope, and a dog. He explained to the guy what he was going to do. First, I'm going to climb up this ladder, beat the gorilla over the head with the bat, and when the gorilla falls off the antenna and off the roof, the dog will bite him in the leg, and you throw the bag over the gorilla and tie him up as quickly as you can, and we will then take the gorilla to the zoo. You got that? As Bill was imagining the sequence of events and the order of things, he became curious about the rifle. So he asked, if I understand it correctly, you are going to climb up the ladder, beat the gorilla over the head with the bat. When the gorilla falls off the antenna and off the roof, the dog will bite the gorilla on the leg, and I'm supposed to throw this bag over his head and tie him up as quickly as I can. <laughs> we will then take the gorilla to the zoo. <laughs> that part of the plan I understand. What do I do with the gun? What is it for? The guy responded as he explained, for some slim chance that when I climb up the ladder and the gorilla grabs the bat and beats me over the head and I fall off the roof, I want you to shoot the dog before I hit the ground. <laughs> oh. And those the guy was afraid he was going to get bit, right? I mean, it's pretty easy. Let me ask you something. Is climbing on a roof and confronting a gorilla worth dying for? More than likely not. I mean, who of us to say it'd be worth it? Now, I'm told that Miss Betty, is Miss Betty here today? Miss Betty, where are you? I am told that you're going to bring a peach cobbler to the office on Monday. And I am told that, and I have said this before, it's worth dying for. Now, nobody makes crust like Miss Betty. I hope she's not sick, and I hope I'm, I'm looking forward to that Monday. Miss Betty, is that right wherever you are? Yes, there you are, hiding in the dark back there. Thank you, Miss Betty. Are we having that tomorrow? And it's mine, right? Nobody else's. Thank you for that. All right. <laughs> what is there worth dying for? Is there anything worth dying for? Is there ever someone who is worth dying for? Martin Luther King Jr. once said, if you got if you got nothing worth living for, then you got nothing worth living for. If you got nothing worth dying for, you've got nothing worth living for. You see, I'm not convinced that the dying part is our problem. I'm convinced that the living thing is our problem. You see, the reason why we have nothing to really die for is because we don't really have anything to live for. Because anything worth dying for is worth living for. Now hold on to what you're thinking at this moment as we go into this study because I wonder if dying for Christ is worth it. Is it worth it? 
we, 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 we talk about and we profess a lot about living for Jesus. But the reality is very few of us have ever been put to the test of our profession and have laid our lives on the line and have been willing to die for Christ, literally. I mean, we live in a very safe place called the United States of America. And while there are other places in the world today where living for Christ means you will die eventually for Jesus. For there are more martyrs today in the last 10 years who have sought to live for Christ and are dying for it than ever, I am convinced, in the history of the church. It's coming to America. It may not see it in your lifetime or in my lifetime, but until Jesus delays in his coming, at some point I believe that there will be people in the United States of America who will, who will die because of their life in Jesus. We're going to talk about in this passage, as we study this incredible passage in 2 Samuel chapter 23, nestled in among the mighty men are three obscure men who find something worth dying for. It is the loyalty that they have toward their king. He is worth dying for. Now let's set the setting for a moment. We see where in this passage, as we sort of talk about as as Pastor Ryan read it a while ago, uh, the setting is simply this. David is hiding out in a cave in somewhere in the proximity of Jerusalem in a valley. And he is hiding out primarily because he's he's afraid for his life. There are people who are out to kill him. Now, who are these people? Some suggest that it's Saul because David has been anointed by Samuel to be the king. You remember he went, Samuel went to Jerusalem and out of the six, God said, not him. Where's the other seven? David came, he anointed him king over Israel. And many believe that Saul in this passage is the one who is seeking to kill him. And for that reason, David is hiding out for his life in a cave in this valley near Jerusalem, afraid for his life. Others suggest that more than likely David has already been crowned as king and as a result of that is facing now the first major confrontation with the Philistines who are now occupying Bethlehem. Keep in mind that the Philistines are very much a part of this, that even though it may be part of the persecution that Saul is giving to David, and that's why he's hiding, the Philistines somehow, because of the weakness of Israel's army, have managed to to move all the way into Israel, and they have captured the city of Bethlehem. Now, if you know anything about the geographic region of Israel, you know that this is pretty much a pretty good ways where the Philistines have made their way into Israel all the way to Bethlehem, and now they have set up a stronghold in the city of Bethlehem. Why is that important? Because Bethlehem is David's hometown. It's where he grew up. It is where the people that he loved and the people that he knew more than likely are living under the occupation of this Philistine, this wicked, this ruthless regime who is pillaging the people. And the reason they are there is to rob not only the people of Bethlehem, but the surrounding area of the harvest. It is harvest time. It is a dry period in the time of Israel, and the harvest is about to be collected. And because the harvest is soon to be collected, then they are there to to pillage, to steal, to rob Israel of their livelihood, of their substance. And David finds himself alone in a cave in this condition. He's desperate. He's discouraged because of the army has made its way as far as they have into into Israel, and there's not anything right now he's been able to do about it. He's discouraged because he's by himself and he's in a cave, 
He's desperate for peace in Jerusalem, but he's also, as we're about to learn, he is desiring to have a cup of water from the well that he is familiar with in, in Bethlehem. See, I'm convinced this well was a well that he was familiar with his whole life. More than likely, his mother went to this well to get water for him when he was a child. More than likely, he went with his mother to get water from this well. And he has been drinking his whole life from this well near the gate in Bethlehem. And he finds himself in this desperate, desolate, devastating place in a pit, longing for a drink of cool water from a familiar place in Bethlehem at this well. And these three men hear of their king's desire. They hear of his king's desire and they risk their lives to get him a cup of water from the well in Bethlehem. Was it worth dying for? Yes. Why? Because their king desired it. And it's their desire to do whatever they can to please their king. Let's take a look at some characteristics that I want to take a look at in this passage. And there are seven of them. We're going to look at them very quickly this morning. And these are seven characteristics of an unhindered loyalty to the king. Seven characteristics of unhindered loyalty to a king. And the king that we're referencing here is the King Jesus. That's for us. Theirs is King David. The first characteristic I find of unhindered loyalty is conclusive, a conclusive decision. A conclusive decision. Let's reread what Pastor Ryan read a while ago. Verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Abdalon. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Exactly what I described to you earlier. Notice the definitive the, the conclusive decision of these three men described in the opening sentence of verse 13, and the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about the harvest time to David in the gate. Who are these three men? They are the three of the 30 that are described in this passage who have left Saul and have aligned themselves to King David. They have left Saul and have aligned themselves with King David. They are not named Pastor Mike and I were talking about when he preached last Sunday why this was not included in your text because these three men are not the same as the three you studied last week with Pastor Mike. These are, this is a completely whole new set of three different men of the 30. Not the same you saw last week. A whole new set. That's why they're not named is because this is a new set. But notice they're not named. Is that important? I believe it is. Why is it important? Because God knows who they are. We don't need to know who they are. You know why we don't need to know who they are? Because more and likely, let's, let's think about it for a minute. If you were one of these three men and your name was, cre- was, was recorded for all history in the Bible, if your name was in the Bible, right, would you ever go there? Would you ever look at it? Would you ever somehow say, look what I did? Sure you would. Let's fess up. How many of you, when you see a picture of your family, look at yourself first? Right? 
How many of you, when you have a picture of yourself, you don't put it up on Facebook or wherever or, or, or put it out because you don't think you look? We are so focused on ourselves. And God knew that if he recorded these names here, man more than likely would claim or get credit for what has taken place. And God doesn't want any single person, these three men, to take credit or get the glory for what God is about to do. There's a reason for this here. He doesn't want man to get the glory. God shares his glory with no one. You cannot steal his glory. It's not something he gives to anyone else. And the reason they're unnamed is because God is about to get the glory for what they have done because what they are about to do is going to be offered to God as a sacrifice. And it's to glorify God. And so they're not named in this passage. Not only that, but notice they went down into the cave. Why is that important? Because David was in a desolate place by himself, probably in the darkness of the cave. And these three men, as they were sort of by the campfire or whatever, said, where is our king? And they climbed down into the cave with David to give him solace, to give him encouragement to be with their king. They want to be in close proximity to their king. These three men with the other 30, have stepped over the line, so to speak. The line has been drawn. And it's kind of like what Joshua said. I don't know who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, if you think about this passage, there are two kings at this particular point in history, I believe. One king is Saul, who is no longer God's choice to be king. It was at one time, but because of his rebellion and his self self-centeredness and his defiance to God. He is no longer the choice that God had for the king. God has already appointed and anointed David to be king through Samuel's uh, you know, activity in, in Jerusalem when they went to worship in the temple. And so now David is the king. So there, there are two kings now in the land to serve. One is Saul and the other is David. And when they have finally come to the conclusion that David is God's choice for the king, who do they decide? They decide to serve David. Why? Because in serving David, they serve God. Because he is the anointed one that God has selected to be king, even though Saul may be occupying the throne at the time. And once they cross that line, there is no turning back. They can't leave Saul and go serve David and now say, well, you know what? I made a mistake. I'm going to go back to serve you now, Saul. More than likely, if they did, their heads would roll. They crossed the line. They are completely 100 sold out for him. There was a moment and a time when many, if not most of us here, saw the line drawn into the sand, serve this world or serve Jesus. We came to the realization of our need for Christ to accept him as our Savior and the sin that caused separation from God. We took a leap of faith and we stepped over the line. We committed our hearts and our lives to Jesus and now he has become our king. And once he now becomes our king, there is no going back. You don't step over the line and then go back and serve the, the king of this world. It was a self-serving selfish, egotistical maniac who is doomed to destruction. And so these men understood to be unhindered in their loyalty to their king. It is a 100% all out, no holes barred commitment to their king, which is the same as our commitment to our king, Jesus. Unhindered loyalty is a conclusive decision. Secondly, it's a compelling 
dedication, a compelling dedication. Notice in the passage, and you know, I, I looked at this, and it was when I was walking with Patty, and we, we take some long walks in our neighborhood, and, and I, I don't know about you, but I have multiple thoughts in my head all at the same time, and sometimes if I don't write them down, I forget them, and I was afraid I was going to forget this, but I didn't, and thank you, Jesus, but... Um, this is an important thing. I began to sort of, you know, I, I sort of cooked this thing in my heart and my soul. And those of you who have taught and preached, you know what I'm talking about and kind of kind of just thinking about it. And, and as I was sort of taking a, a mile-high view of what's going on, all of a sudden it dawned on me. I'm going to read to, this, to you and see if, this, if, you, if you think about what I saw. Notice verse 13. Let's reread it. And three of the 30 men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Abdullah. Skip down to verse 16, the first part of verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. Did you notice what I noticed? There's 30 men. 30 men. But only three, only three, only three go down into the cave and only three hear the king's desire and only three risk their lives to go to Bethlehem to please their king. Only three out of 30. I don't know about you. I'm not take a, a, a rocket scientist. Sorry, Rich. I know you're in here. Or Three out of 30 is what? 10%. 10%. Three out of 30 is 10%. Only 10% of the men heard what David wanted. Only 10% of the men risked their lives for the water that the king desired. Only 10%. And I scratched my head and said, you know what? That's the church today. 10% are willing to die for Christ, if that many. I mean, I don't know if these men, these other 27 men, didn't understand, didn't hear, didn't have an opportunity, weren't invited. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. All I know is that only 3 out of 30 went. And if you step across the line to commit wholeheartedly to the King Jesus, don't expect a large crowd to follow you. If you completely sell out 100% to King Jesus and give him your whole heart and say, I will not only live for you, but I will live in a way that I will die for you, I guarantee you, you'll be in the minority, not the majority. For only 10% of the people today, I'm convinced, who profess Jesus will die for him when the opportunity avails itself. We must possess a compelling dedication that regardless of what the cost or the sacrifice or the desire of our King Jesus, we are willing to lay our lives on the line and die for him to be that 10%. Characteristic number three, unhindered loyalty is a conclusive decision, a compelling dedication, a captivating desire. A captivating desire. Interesting in verse 15. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Notice their undivided attention and their close proximity. They're down into the, into the pit with David and they are close enough to him. Why? They want to be near him. They are captivated by him. They, he is their focus. He is their attention. He is their life. They have committed their all to serve him and they want to be near him. And as they draw near to him, 
what do they hear? They hear him speak with words. These are words that he voiced. These are words that he stated. These are things, this thing he said with his mouth. It wasn't loudly. It was just something that he desired and he spoke it. And they were close enough to hear what their king desired. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. But notice how he said it. That's, that's critical. He said it what? Lovingly, longingly, desirous, wanting it. He longingly said it. That is a deep desire. It's not just, you know, I, I wish it was time for dinner right now because I'm really feeling hungry. It's not just a simple half-hearted, uncommitted desire. It is a deep-down burning desire of his soul. He is, he, is, he is thirsty, not just physically, but he is thirsty spiritually. And he is thinking about his boyhood days when he's gone to that well in the, in, in, by the gate of Bethlehem and that water has soothed his quenching desire. And he was no longer thirsty. He was thirsty not just for water, but for much more. And he longingly made this comment. And they were captivated with a desire to please their king. And nothing else would take priority other than that. I find little commitment to that today in most of the lives of those of us who are Christ followers. And to be honest with you, that is more than likely my greatest struggle as well. To desire what he desires more than what I desire. Because the reality is that often what I desire is not what he desires. And I should be so close to him, so intimate with him, so connected to him, that when he whispers something that he desires, he just it's not a command, it's just something he desires. That his desire is so captivating that it becomes my desire and at any cost to myself, even if it costs my life, I will lay it down so that my King Jesus' desires are fulfilled. How often do we put our desires in the driver's seat of our lives, of our minds, of our hearts, and we drive our lives pretending as if our desires are his desires. But the passage says that our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. And too often, I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm not careful, I'll make up this this, this lie within my own spirit and somehow convince myself that my desires are his desires, but more than likely, if I examine them really closely and I hear his voice and I study his word and understand what he wants, I have to say, you know, Lord, honestly, they're not one and the same. And it's me who needs to then change. For until my desire is to please his desire more than my own, I won't have unhindered loyalty to my King Jesus. Number four, unhindered loyalty is a conclusive decision, a compelling dedication, a cultivating desire. And number four, a courageous disposition. These men had a character about them of bravery, of courage. They were fearless. I want to be like that, don't you? I want to live fearless. Uh, the reality is that fear is a part of who we are. We've talked about that two Sundays ago. Pastor Mike alluded to it last Sunday. But it's to harness that fear so that it becomes 
a part of me that hinders me and holds me back from that which I know is my king's desire, to give to him unquestioned allegiance and loyalty so that his desire becomes mine. Notice what happens in the text. And then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. Somehow, somehow, these three unnamed guys, they have names, they're not no names, they have names, but unnamed guys, somehow, they, they manage to escape and to elude their king's atten- attention for a little bit. They leave the camp. They travel 10, 12, 14 miles to Bethlehem. Somehow they do the impossible. They fight their way through the line, through the barricade in which they have, have this, this garrison, this fortification that the Philistines have in the city of Bethlehem. They make their way through the gate, and as they are fighting the Philistines, somebody draws water from the well. That's phenomenal. It blows my mind. They're drawing water from the well. This courageous character, this disposition to please their king overcomes their fear and they attack that which is between their king's desire and their loyalty to him and they risk their lives for that. I want to be that kind of follower of Jesus that has unquestioned character, that possesses the courage that at any, every, and all cost, I'm willing to lay it on the line and die for him. Number five, unhindered loyalty is a conclusive decision, a compelling dedication, a captivating desire, a courageous disposition. Number five, a careful discipline. These guys are not careless. They are not casual. They are not complacent with the offering and the sacrifice that they're going to bring to the king. Don't miss this. I almost did. It says, after they got the water from the gate of the, uh, next to the gate in the city of Bethlehem, notice, and they carried it. They carried it. That word carried means to make, to, to move while supporting, to move while supporting. You ever try to carry water? It's awkward, isn't it? I don't know what device or what vessel they used to carry this water, but I don't care what vessel or device they used. It could have been easy. Water's heavy and water sloshes around, especially when you're fighting your way away from the, uh, the well, out of the city gates, and back toward David. It wasn't easy once they got it. They were more than likely still fighting the enemy as they were gathering it and leaving it. I, I can't imagine them getting a, a small cup of water, can you? To risk their lives for just a little sip? I mean, what if they had just got a small little drink of water on their way, accidentally spilt it? What would that mean? We've got to go back to Bethlehem and do it all over again. I can imagine to, to fulfill the desire of their king, they weren't thinking, well, let's just get a little bit. They were going to get as much as they could carry. One had to more than likely carry the water, and the other two fight their way out. It was a courageous display of loyalty to their king. It was not a careless thing. There was a risk. They risked their lives. They fought a fierce battle. They made the journey there, and they made the journey back. And it doesn't say here they spilt any of it when they offered it to their king. I wonder how careless we are in our offering to our king, Jesus. How flippant we often are 
how complacent we become, how casual we are when we enter into the place of worship and offer to him that which cost us nothing. In chapter 24 of Samuel, David was to offer a sacrifice for his disobedience to the Lord. God finally said, okay, but offer a sacrifice, and he did, and he was going to offer a sacrifice on some land, and this guy was willing to sell him the land, and he said, I cannot offer a sacrifice unto my God of that which costs me nothing. I wonder if your offering today, the giving of yourself, has been careless and costless and casual and complacent, half-hearted. I'll give him this much. We complain when the service goes over 12 o'clock. Really? And you watched a football game yesterday for three hours. How'd that go for you? All right, Oklahoma, you almost lost. Yeah. Came close. (laughs) I know how Kansas City did. I didn't watch that part. I only watched a few minutes of the, the final game of Oklahoma. And I'll be honest with you, I was rooting for the underdogs. But anyway. We are so, I wonder about us, myself, sometimes, and how careless and how flippant, how casual I am in entering into the presence of my king and bringing to him an offering that is worthy of King Jesus, worthy of him. When you present yourself to him, is it a worthy offering? Number six, unhindered loyalty is a conclusive decision, a compelling dedication, a captivating desire, a courageous disposition, a careful discipline, and a complete disposal. A complete disposal. Once they presented it to the king, guess what? They released all rights to it. It was his. It wasn't theirs anymore. It was his. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well in the Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried, and they brought it to David. They carried the water for miles, and when they got there, they gave it to him. It was no longer theirs. They had heard, they had responded, they had done the battle, they had paid the price, they had carried it back, They brought it to him and they laid it at his feet and they said, it is now yours. They lay no longer any claim to this sacrifice. It's his. It's yours, David. And yet I wonder how often when we present ourselves to our King Jesus, we try to reclaim parts of our lives as if we had rights to them. When the reality is we must come to him unhindered in our loyalty and completely dispose of all of our rights and give our total everything to him. Even our lives are yours. I don't have any more rights. And that's hard for Americans because we think we have rights. We fight for other people's rights. We sometimes, when we come before God, think we have rights. And what we offer to God, we don't offer them as if they didn't have any strings attached. We offer them to God with strings attached. And if God doesn't do this, or God doesn't do that, or I don't like this, or I don't like that, if the cost is too great, or the sacrifice is, is, is too big, then you know what? I, I'm just, I'm out. 
When we come to these rights, the reality is that he who died to his rights so that we might live expects us to die to our rights so that he might live in and through us. Number seven, consecrated devotion. It's interesting as we culturally read this, we don't quite understand the idea behind what is happening here and the king and how he reacts. Let's just read it, verse 16, the last part, but he would not drink of it. I mean, here these guys have risked their lives to bring him some water, and when they present it to him and they relinquish all rights, he doesn't drink it. And the first thing that probably, I don't know, it doesn't say this, but I don't know what about you, but what would go through my head, don't you appreciate my gift? Look what we've done for you, man. Drink it. He doesn't drink it. But instead, he poured it out unto the Lord. He poured it out unto the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink of the blood of the men who, who went at the risk of their lives? He doesn't see water. He sees the blood of the men who gave blood so that he might drink of this water. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. He poured it out unto the Lord. What would you have responded or how would you have reacted if you were one of these three men? Just poured it out. It doesn't say here that they put up a protest or they questioned him or they wondered why. They simply receive it. Why? Because culturally, I think they knew as Jewish men who are familiar with the scriptures that Jesus was offering to God a drink offering. It was a drink offering. An offering that was given to him by the blood of his own men. And he would not stoop to the level of, of minimizing their sacrifice. Instead, he poured it out onto the ground as unto the Lord. And he elevated the sacrifice of these men by giving it to God, Jehovah. And they understood in the temple the sacrifices. That this was an incredible sacrifice where where, where fluid was poured upon the sacrifice. And as a result of that, it says in Leviticus and Numbers that the aroma would go up into heaven unto the Lord as a sacrifice. They understood what David did. It's interesting. I was talking to Patty about it, and I don't have conclusive evidence. This is only my personal belief about this passage. But here goes. In, in Numbers and in well, the book of Numbers and the book of where, where, where Moses is setting up the sacrifices that are going into the Holy Land. Numbers and help me out. I went blank. What? Deuteronomy. Sorry, guys. Leviticus. In Leviticus and Numbers, Numbers 15, I believe, where God gives Moses what they are to do when they enter into the Holy Land, how they are to offer sacrifice. And as they are offering sacrifice, as they get into the Holy Land, a part of that is a drink offering. So they are not then to offer sacrifice unto God this way until they enter into the promised land that God has promised them in Israel. 
I wonder if David, when he poured it out, had that in mind. This is similar to the promise that God made to me when Samuel anointed me to be the king. And now, based upon that promise, I believe that pouring this out is an anticipation of my inheriting that which God intended for me to have when I occupy the throne on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And it was an act of faith, not just an act of worship. Interesting thought. But it was a consecrated devotion in which he elevated the sacrifice and gave it to God. So, let's close with this thought. I want you to take your Bible, not on there, but uh, let me take you, ask you to take your Bible. I want to go one last scripture in John 13, verse 38. If you have your Bibles or your iPad or your iPhone or whatever device you use, John 13, 38. How much of our profession is just that? something we say Peter John 13 38 Simon Peter said to him Lord where are you going and Jesus answered him where am I going you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterwards and Peter said to him Lord why can I not follow you now I lay down my life for you I will lay down my life for you And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I mean, let's give Simon Peter some credit. At least he wanted to be in close proximity of Jesus. He never wanted to let Jesus out of his sight, really. If you know anything about the apostle Peter, he he did everything to be on the heels of Jesus at every moment. He was the fastest to respond, and sometimes he did it without thought. And that's what caused him a lot of conflict. He wanted to be near Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm about to go. He said, well, I want to go with you. You can't go with me. He said, well, why? You know, how many parents keep answering the why question a bazillion times every day? Why? Why? I will die for you. What was that? Was that a, a profession without true conviction? See, I'm convinced that, 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 that Simon Peter had not yet reached the stage or the place and the point in his commitment to Christ where he was able to do what he was claiming he would do. And Jesus knew it well. That's why he said, hey, Simon Peter, before the night ends, you're going to deny me three times. Because some of you are sitting here saying, you know what? I would like to think that I could profess my loyalty to King Jesus to the degree that if he were to require my death, I would die for him. But if really 10% of us more than likely are there, 90% of us are not. And we know what happened to Simon Peter. That very evening, he found himself surrounded by the enemies of Jesus, and they asked him three times, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times he said, I am not. As a matter of fact, the last time, he even swore, cursed And said, absolutely not. And as soon as he left, he heard the rooster crow. As soon as he denied Jesus, and he wept. And we know later on that Jesus pursued him individually and went and sought him out after his resurrection, had a one-on-one with Simon Peter, and restored him back into a right relationship. And later on, we know, by tradition, Simon Peter does die a martyr's death, a horrific death. And it's then that he's ready to die for Christ. We battle this every single day. It may not be life and death physically, but it's life and death spiritually. 
Are you ready and are you willing to have an unquestioned loyalty to Jesus? Where he is as your king, you will be able to lay your life on the line and say, Lord, just whisper to me what you desire. And upon my understanding of what you desire, I am willing, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, I'll do it for you. The problem is with desire. We don't desire him enough. See, the problem isn't with our living. Many people have a hard time with living. I just can't live the Christian life like, like I know I should. Ever heard that? Ever thought that? Ever use that as an excuse for your sin and your denial of Christ? It's not a living problem. It's a desire problem. Because when I come to the place in spiritual maturity where I desire His will above my own, and it's my desire to do whatever has to be done to please Him, regardless of what it is, it's then that I'm ready to die for Him. I'm not sure I'm there yet. Are you? Let's pray.